Earthbed Muscle is a grassroots supplement company created by some of the best strength coaches in the United States to provide their athletes with wholesome supplements. Earthbed Muscle has changed the supplement industry with their minimal ingredient approach to sports nutrition. Dane's platform is also brought to you by the Acceleration Diet. The Acceleration Diet is a customized weight loss program catered to each individual, their needs, and their schedule. Accelerate your metabolism today with the Acceleration Diet. Finally, Dane's platform is also brought to you by Holistic Encapsulations. Holistic Encapsulations provides organic hemp extract with an incredible 27 to 1 CBD ratio. Loaded with CBDs, hemp extract has been shown to decrease anxiety, have a positive impact on cancer, improve sleep, improve brain function, and decrease inflammation. Head over to HolisticEncapsulations.com today and get on the path to holistic recovery. Alright, so we're here for another recording at Dane's Platform, and we got a shit show going on in the other end with uh, Brooks Miller of North Mountain Pastures. <laughs> Sounds like his whole, uh, your whole uh, old Amish farmhouse is exploding. I uh, just built a really nice uh, town out of Lincoln Logs, and Kai's destroying it. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, what are you doing on a day like today when it's real snowy? I castrated piglets earlier, <laughs> and then and then I cut some wood, and then I fixed the handle on my van. <laughs> the new one or the old one? Uh, the green, the Sienna, like the family van. Not oh, the, okay. Yeah. No. I got yeah. No, but the new one, the new one has uh, recall, probably some freaking um, emissions Airbag. thing. No, I'm guessing it's the emissions because that's what they've been they've been doing with the uh volkswagens we that's had what, two that's we what that def recalls. is man that's what the freaking uh blue fluid Dies is yeah diesel exhaust yeah yeah it's just so they don't get um in the same trouble volkswagen did yeah all right so i wanted to go over sort of like your goals on the farm and if you could share with everybody what your goals are and and what you're up to throughout the winter time and then how you're preparing for the spring and then just sort of get into a discussion from that. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I guess we talked a little bit last time about why we we do what we do. And, um, <clears throat> I mean, that's kind of hand-in-hand hand with, with goals. You know, the, the thing that I – I guess I kind of subscribe to the idea that you're not looking for some end result ever, you know, that you're trying to – um, at least for me in my life, I'm trying to live by certain principles that I agree with. And, um, that's generally going to make things better, <laughs> make yeah. my, my life more enjoyable, make the soil better, make the animals healthier, um, make my family life better, all that kind of stuff. So with that said, you know, the biggest principle that we farm by is that we should be producing topsoil all the time um you know i think you probably know maybe a lot of other people don't know that our uh soils are are pretty depleted um not pretty depleted but extremely depleted so it's not just processed food like you you know you hear that all the time that it's processed food where the nutrients get stripped out of our food but um, even before it gets processed, it's already at a disadvantage, right? So, you know, in the last pretty much 75 or 80 years, we've switched from an organic farming method, I'm saying in general, um, in the United States and in a lot of places around the globe, we switched from 
organic farming practices, which honestly weren't always the best, but you know, at least generally you're using animal agricultural inputs and living soils to, to make things grow to, um, <clears throat> what, what some people call toxic rescue chemistry, chemistry, which is, you know, we figured out in the 19th century that NP and K, um, nitrogen, uh, potassium and phosphorus are the three things that make plants grow the most. So, um, there's all these other micronutrients that are needed to make real healthy plants, but the plants will still grow as long as they have CO2 to breathe, um, and NPK for fertilizer. So as the, you know, reductive morons that we are, uh, as humans, we decided <laughs> to, to say, oh, well, if that's all it takes, that's all we should do. And, um, you know, kind of what, what the way that I feel people should be farming is not even is not focusing on those inputs at all, but focusing on systems. And so for me, that's building new topsoil, which is using animals to um, graze on perennial and annual pasture. And, you know, I can talk about that a little bit more later, but grazing on perennial pasture, you just let that, um, the, the grass pulls in carbon from the atmosphere. Um, the carbon feeds the bugs in the, in the soil, um, not spraying allows the bugs to continue to live in the soil. So no pesticides, no herbicides, no high nitrogen, which burns a lot of the bugs out. Um, and there's, there's like a symbiotic relationship between the grazing livestock, the grasses, the soil, the weather, all this stuff is working together to do what nature normally does, which is to build things up rather than, um, you know, tear things down. Um, not to say that that never happens, obviously, you know, like a hurricane or a tornado is, a is a natural event, but you don't have to farm every year. Like you're a freaking hurricane, right? <laughs> you right, want right. to, you want to have those events, you know, and sometimes like a hurricane or a tornado is really healthy for a forest because it, it tears down the old deadwood and, you know, and people used to burn a lot. Um, some people still burn a lot. So none of those things are, are bad. It's just when that's, you know, when, when you don't have, um, solid grazing or, or regenerative stuff in general happening on the ground and feeding the soil microbes, then, you know, you're not going to have healthy foods. So I'd say that's like the number, the number one, uh, principle that we try to farm by is healthy soil, increasing soil productivity, increasing our topsoil in general. So there's this thing called cation exchange capacity, which sounds really scientific, but it basically means that the, um, you know, if you think of the soil, like, um, sort of like a Velcro, um, the, the, the cations in the, um, in the soil. So these are elements, right? These are like calcium, magnesium, things like that. They need to have places to Velcro to in the soil for them to become available to the plant. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And so cation exchange capacity is generally just, if you have more carbon, you know, you have more, more cation exchange capacity. So you can do that by putting more carbon in the soil, which a lot of people are doing now with, um, biochar, you know, and that's why people like biochar because there's so much capacity within the, um, like literally within the, um, surface area of charcoal, there's tons of room for microbes to sit, you know, for, 
for trace elements to sit and that sort of thing. And that helps to exchange the nutrients up to the plant from the soil, um, but also just growing more um, perennial crops like grasses and clover and things like that and having them you know laid back down into the soil as more carbon also increases that ex exchange capacity and just you know just think about like if you have a higher capacity to exchange minerals from the soil to the plant then the plants have higher minerals within them and then the animals who are consuming those plants have higher minerals within their meat and within their fat um and so, so would yeah. you say like when you when you guys have a, a field that's planted with all the perennials and you know they they go to seed and then they sort of like plant like replant themselves each year and then the following year the the field will get a little bit more dense and it can then add carbon a little bit more carbon than it may have the previous year and then the animals will eat that those plants and you know potentially spread seed even further so that each year it can lead to a little bit more carbon input into the into the soil which will de develop more topsoil and then lead to more stable soils as well that can protect or that can um, you know provide for animals that might be grazing yeah and I mean that yeah it's a, that's a pretty good uh, way to put it and and you're also increasing the amount of water that the topsoil can hold right so right. because they're because soil's porous the more topsoil you have the more water it can hold and you know california is a great example of this i mean you know if you read these old accounts of what california was like back in the day Anna's reading a book right now and it's talking about like these estuaries that were so full of birds that you could literally like you know if you wanted to you could have run across the backs of the birds across these giant estuaries um, and there was, you know, when first, that's why the Okies went there, right? Because it was lush. It was full. It was like, it was like Eden and it's a freaking desert. It's literally a desert now. You know, we right. have been irrigating the central Valley for the last 60, 70 years. And that water's almost run out. Water's insanely expensive out there. And so, you know, that's all a result, completely a result of stripped topsoil. There's no topsoil there anymore. They've either grazed it off with crappy grazing practices or farmed it off and shipped it across the country in produce. So I guess that, that sort of leads into my next question is that I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about like vegetable farmers and, and even if you think about like grain production and soybeans and corn production and stuff like that, if, you know, a lot of people will, will argue that, um, you know, maybe farming vegetables and stuff like that is a little bit more productive for um, for the environment because they'll they'll talk about the the carbon, I guess, gases or methane gases that cows can give off and and how much um, you know pigs and and other animals can contribute to to air pollution and stuff like this. Um, so I guess my question would be, what what is better in your mind you know is it better to be farming vegetables and fruits and stuff for the environment or is it better to be farming more along the lines of how you're setting everything up or is there no true you know best system or or you know what is what is the system that you sort of sit there and in your mind you're like okay this is the best system that can cover all aspects of life and and, and help all aspects of life flourish in in the right environment yeah so, um, 
what I always like to think of is what are your staple foods, right? So in terms of where do you actually get your energy and your nutrients day to day? Um, and I would say, you know, like produce, fruit and produce, um, it's, they're great, but you can't, you know, nobody lives off of apples, right? Nobody lives off of lettuce. <laughs> like if you're vegan or vegetarian, you still have to eat, you know, chickpeas or often soy or corn or some combination of all these things, or in a lot of the third world countries, you know, rice and beans. And so there are lots of ways to produce those things in a sustainable way. Um, not not a whole lot of ways to produce them industrially in a sustainable way. A lot of guys in Pennsylvania are starting to use cover crops and they're rolling down the cover crops and then, and then um, planting into those cover crops with a uh, no-till drill, which is a huge step forward, um, you know, for growing those kind of, that's generally for corn and soybeans that, you know, generally wouldn't be for like potatoes or chickpeas or anything like that. But, um, you know, so I always think of these staples, you know, you know, wheat would be another one. So like, how are you growing that wheat? Is it, is it in a rotation with animals? The old school rotation in Pennsylvania was, um, the, it was, uh, C O W S cows, corn, oats, wheat, sod. So your first year is corn. Then you plant oats the second year. Then you go to wheat the third year. And the fourth, fifth, and sixth years, it's in sod. You plant it into grass, and then you graze that for the next three or four years. And once the nutrient levels have been brought back up by the animal agriculture, then you can plant corn in it again. You can till it up, and you can plant corn into it again. So, I mean, that's some tillage. So that is not what I would say is the absolute ideal. Um, but there are guys in Australia who are grazing sheep on, um, on ground that as the as the plants go dormant in the um, the warm season, they graze it all the way to the ground and they no-till straight into perennial pasture. And they're no-tilling in some kind of warm season, like so corn would be a warm season, grass, um, uh, millet would be a warm season. So when the, co the cool seasons go, go dormant, you can put these warm seasons in. And we've done that here too um, with like cover crops. So I think that you have to think about your like, your region, your bioregion, what what you have available to you, um, and that sort of stuff. But as a as an eater, you have to think about like not just okay. I I'm a vegetarian, so I eat vegetables and fruit. Like so so what are what are you actually eating? Where are you getting those actual calories from? Right. You're 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 most likely eating a bunch of bread or some soy or some you know protein from chickpeas. Or rice and beans and so just understanding how those are produced I think is what you have to do as a person who eats food you know more than like this is the best versus this is the best um, I could say like in Pennsylvania I think what we should be doing is planting a heck of a lot more perennials um, like chestnuts apples hazelnuts um, things like that chestnuts are comparable to corn for um, for carbohydrate levels and protein levels. And so you could easily replace a lot of your corn with chestnuts in animal feeds. So for chickens or for pigs or things like that, cows shouldn't be eating corn at all. Cows should right. just be grazing. Um, 
And we, you know, we actually did a, a research study using our records and a few other farms records with PASA, um, the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture. And we looked at if we switched just Pennsylvania completely over to farms like ours, do we have the acreage here to feed every single person in this state? We used, I think we used a third of a pound of meat per day, um, you know, with the current farmed acreages. And the answer was absolutely, you would have to turn some of the, some of the corn and soybean land, so some of the annual land into perennial land, which is way better because it's a really hilly state. Pennsylvania has tons of hills. And so if you put more of it into perennials, it's actually, you know, you're better off. Um, and we had uh, like three times as much. So really you could feed each person in Pennsylvania a pound of meat a day, which is, you know, freaking, you know, a That's lot. That's probably more most, than I eat. Yeah, most people don't eat a pound of meat a day. And so, you, you know, the, the whole argument of, you know, it takes too much or whatever like that, that's true if you're feeding cows, it takes too much land. If you're feeding cows in confinement with, you know, 20 pounds of corn goes in to make one pound of beef because they can't digest the freaking corn, you know. But if you're in a fully managed grazing system, um, and especially if some of those grazing systems were planted, that's without even figuring in that perennials are planted there, right? So a lot of these pigs and chickens and turkeys and things like that, if we were actually planting our hillsides with chestnuts and apples and, and things like that where you had trees above the grasses so you have essentially like a two you know a, like a savanna um you have one of the most productive ecosystems in the world uh pennsylvania wants to grow trees anyway right it used to be all hardwood forest here um you know 500 years ago anyway uh, and then you've got the grasses below that and you've got these animals that can either harvest their own or, you know, you harvest a lot of this stuff, roast it, dry it, preserve it the same way we do right now. Um, and the thing that would be stopping any of this stuff from happening is just the fact that it's like our entire agricultural ecosystem is just based around corn and soybean processing. Um, so that's, that's really the thing that you come up against anytime you're doing this is not only is the business already existing to, you know, to work with just corn and soybeans, but you, then you have lobbies and farmers who don't want to change their practices, you know, and all this stuff that you're going to kind of just be slamming your head against a wall if you want that change to happen. Right. So I'm like, just listening to you, I'm thinking about my, you know, my land and I've got, you know, I have 15 acres in the woods and I want to run pigs out in my, in like a little, pasture that I have that's about three acres but then I'm I'm also thinking like hey you know could I use anything in the woods is is it is it detrimental for you to 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 run animals through the woods because there's so much soil development from leaves and stuff like that or or is, is running stuff through the woods positive for you know the environment for soil production and for and for the animal's health yeah so I think you have to Again, like you can't say yes or no, because if you say yes to something like that, then people assume that you're just like throwing 50 pigs into an acre of woods and leaving them there, which honestly is what a lot of people do. <laughs> so like that is bad and it doesn't do any benefits for the landscape. I think unless like the ground is frozen, you know, like I'll keep pigs in an area for a while. If, if the ground is frozen, just because I know they're not rooting they're not destroying the soil structure that sort of stuff but if you have them in 
a spot in the woods, you just have to be out there watching, you know, like we've definitely done it where we've left them in spots for too long. And what they'll do is they'll strip the topsoil and they'll, you know, if you get a big rain event after, after you have, you know, pigs rooting all over the place, then you will lose topsoil. So you just have to pay attention and move them quickly so that they're not destroying the soil structure, you know, tearing up the ground so that there's no, um, there's nothing holding the soil in place anymore so that if it does rain, it's going to wash off, you know, pay attention to how steep it is um, and that sort of thing. Grass works really well to keep things in place. Tree roots work okay, but like not, not nearly as good as grass. Grass just really keeps the soil um, in place. And, you know, the people who are like native plant kind of people don't like to hear that because, they don't like fescue and orchard grass and all the European grasses, which is like what everyone's lawn is and everyone's pasture is those European grasses. But they do a really freaking good job <laughs> holding the soil in place. So um, that's why, you know, they're everywhere. So I would just say you just have to be, you have to understand, you have to be on the soil and that's, you have to be on the land and, and really know what you're working with and just not you know, don't be a moron, like look at it and know, oh, okay, we're screwing it up right now. We got to get these pigs off of here and get them moved to another spot or cows or horses. I mean, go anywhere or these freaking whitetail farms, man, whitetails and horses. Those are, those are the farms that you see that are just grass eaten to the ground and, you know, completely destroyed. There's no topsoil. You know, these, these horses are just left out there. Um, season after season after season and it's just you know nothing's there and so that's what it looks like when you just throw stuff out and you don't move it when you move stuff around um it's regenerative and you know just <laughs> this is how this is how it works everywhere in the world that's how it works in you know the savannah the african savannah the lions move the the prey from place to place to place right they don't right they don't just stay at the giraffes and the, you know, the water buffalo and everything. They don't just stand there and eat the same grass every day. You know, they, they get moved by the predators um, and by the seasons. Um, and that's how the bison used to be in the United States. You know, the bison used to be moving pretty much all around the continent. Um, and they'd move, they'd move based on predators and based on availability of, uh, of feed and that sort of thing. So if you're just bringing feed out to your animals like hay or corn or whatever and throwing feeding them in a dirt lot it's not going to help the soil it's just going to destroy it it's going to compact it so if if you use you know moving animals to increase topsoil and to save topsoil you know you, it, you see it's getting a little bit worn down so you move them to the next paddock and then the previous paddock that they're on starts to really flourish from from the manure and stuff like that my question then becomes if we go back to that vegetable farm like how does how does a, a vegetable farm prevent or how can they prevent you know the the topsoil from being stripped if they don't if they aren't farming in conjunction with animals that can that can help um keep the topsoil there you know you can yeah. move animals pretty easy but how can a vegetable farmer do the same thing from a vegetable perspective or is it just you know the no-till what you talked about earlier yeah so so it's some that i mean i can tell you from farmers who i know i have i have a couple friends who say that their systems wouldn't work without animals you know we know one farm in particular who has a vegetable csa and then they also raise some livestock sheep um and poultry 
and they use a lot of that poultry litter for their fertilizer, you know, and they're certified organic. So everything they have is certified organic and it's going back on the land and they're trying to do minimal tillage and they also use cover crops. So the cover crops definitely help to feed the soil. Um, you know, the one other farm that I know who uses a lot of cover crops, they also have worms. I mean, they have worm bins that would fill, you know, my shipping containers, those 40 foot shipping containers, they have worm bins that would fill two of those shipping containers. Like literally the, the volume of worms would fill <laughs> like that whole, that whole volume of the shipping container. And so they're harvesting, they're allowing the worms to do the digestion for them. And then they're both using that, um, worm, um, vermicompost is what it's called right. as, um, potting material and then also making compost tea out of it. So they make a hyper aerated compost tea and then spray that directly onto the, the leaves so that there are all the healthy microbes that are coming out of soil or out of uh, worm castings are then straight on those plants and they're, you know, helping to feed the plants. So those are two ways that I would say, I mean, I'd call earthworms livestock. You know, I would say those guys, they're managing livestock to get that input of vermicompost. Um, that other farm, they're definitely using livestock as an input. Um, the guys who I know who are doing the no-till um, with, uh, with the multiple species of cover crop, they're planting, you know, five, six, seven, sometimes up to like 12 different species of plants into the ground in the fall. Um, and they either winter kill, which means they die over the winter, or they, or they roll it down, which means they come through, they come through with the front of the tractor has essentially like a big steamroller on it, right? So think of a giant, a giant uh, cylinder that has fins on it so that it actually crimps the plant over. That's on the front of the tractor, and on the back of the tractor is a no-till drill. A no-till drill is just a, a machine that cuts into that litter and into the soil and then drops a seed into the furrow that's been cut by the drill. Um, so those guys are doing that, but honestly, actually that place is also applying um, manure from the beef operation they have. So they're still using animal inputs. I think, I mean, you know, on, on a, on a larger scale, most of these guys are just using, are just using uh, chemical fertilizer. Um, if they didn't have access to chemical fertilizer, they'd have to be using poultry litter or, you know, something like that. I think it would be really hard to only rely on cover crops to bring, maybe if your ground was healthy in the first place, you could get away with it, you know, and you could just do those cover crops because that's very similar to like the natural cycle of, you know, like the forest where like leaf litter is, is accumulating on the ground and the earthworms are coming to eat the stuff that, you know, like the turnips, turnips that are stuck in the ground that are that you're using as a cover crop. You leave those turnips in the ground and, and over the winter and in the early spring, worms are coming and microbes are coming to digest all of that plant matter that's there. So I think if you had healthy soils already, you could probably get away with it. But without that, I'm, I'm thinking you're going to need almost like a probiotic for the soil, <laughs> you know, yeah. to get everything going again. And that's what I think of soil as is a, I think of my whole farm like the topsoil as a giant digestive system, because that's really what it is. It's processing, you know, the, the plants in the soil working together are processing um, gases and nutrients and churning out other nutrients and gases. 
right? Just like our digestive system does. Yeah, it's, ex- it's the exact same thing. It's ex- yeah. and, and the healthier that is, the healthier your digestive tract is, the, the healthier your brain is going to be, the, the better your, you know, your mental stability is going to be. And it's the same exact principles with, with, with your farm. You know? Totally, yeah. And, and you know, the, the, the healthier the animals are on the land, the healthier that meat's going to be and the healthier that you're going to be. You know, and that's and that, he, that's why milk is fortified now. You know, you go in right, the store, right. and it's, you know, vitamin A and D are added because uh, they need vitamin D from the freaking sun. You know, so yeah, and they're in confinement; they don't get the vitamin D. Yeah, yeah, and same with vitamin A, vitamin E. All these things are are things they would get on pasture, um, but they don't have. And you know, people know that they need this stuff, so people look at it like, oh, there's vitamin A and D added to this, but it don't stop to think, well, why do we have to add it? Because we suck at farming. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that that's like the, my next, that leads into my next topic is like, we, we have this setup now where the, the major farms in the, in the U S and like the, the big commercial industrial farms, plant-based and um, meat and dairy base are, are, they're so well funded and so well invested and there's so much, you know, government subsidies from, or from the government. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, I just want to know, like, what is it? How, how do you take this mental approach to rival those, those, those farms? Like, do you sit there and, you know, deep down inside, you're like, fuck it, I'm going to stick it to these guys and I'm going to prove to people that this is possible. Or is it, you know, I don't even consider them my competition. I'm going to do what I can do. Maybe there's a couple other local farmers similar to you, but you don't ever really worry about the big guys up top. Like, how? What is that approach that you're taking on a day-to-day basis, where you sit there and you see how not easy, but those systems are already developed, and they're failing systems that don't work, and then you're developing this, you know, super successful system that, you know, is 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 successful because of trial and error and learning from the soil and learning from the animals and the plants and everything working, you know, synergistically. You know, how, I guess, how do you just digest all of that and still stay positive and work forward, you know, with, with these goals in mind of developing a, a healthy digestive soil? Yeah. Um, so I think you have to differentiate between ecological success and financial success because they are not going to go hand in hand, obviously. The precedent's already there, right? Our, our current industrial ag system is amazingly financially successful and horribly ecologically unsuccessful and destructive. <laughs> so, so you need to start with that assumption that just because we're trying to do good work, that literally means nothing to you know the bottom line. Um, so when I started, I definitely had the idea that I wanted to do this to like prove to just prove something to show that like you could make a living producing good food. Um, and you know, I knew other farmers who had done it. Most of the people who had done it, who were actually making money at it were, were growing vegetables. Um, and that generally seems to be the thing is that, you know, certified organic vegetables in particular, um, are, you know, you can, you can make decent money doing that. There's not a lot of livestock farmers, you know, making, uh, like like me, like my size, um, who are doing things ecologically sound, who are making a decent living at this point. I think that the biggest thing that those farmers and I have to do is is just this is like you know, essentially 
ecological communication, right? So, so educating people, making them aware of the fact that, you know, the reason that you might have some digestive and health issues is probably related to what you're eating. It's probably <laughs> related to what your food is eating. And it's most likely that there's your, your food is completely devoid of nutrients. And so your body is going, dude, get your shit together, man. Like eat some good stuff so I can live and thrive. Um, you know, and it's almost the same thing that you do, right? So you have, you're trying to, um, educate people like through social media, through your podcast, through your blog on healthy training practices, right? So people in the same way that they're going to injure themselves, you know, on a platform being stupid, they're going to injure themselves on a daily basis, eating, being stupid, right? Just, yeah. just, yeah. just not even, you know, and this is something that Anna and I just went through again, like we were buying, it's winter. So we were buying a bunch of, you know, California organic produce and, and we just started like really going, looking at it and going, man, why, why there's gotta be a farm close enough to us that we can get food that we know ha is grown in actual topsoil, you know, and like right. the, the workers are treated appropriately and the soil is treated well and that sort of stuff. And so, you know, we just try and make it part of every decision that we make, um, you know, is, is, is this in the end, is this healthy? If we kept doing this year after year, will, will we still be here? You know, will the, will the, will people on the earth still be here? And I think if people just started making their decisions that way, Dude, who who would eat who would eat confinement meat at that point? You know, nobody would eat confinement meat. Who I would I, eat confinement vegetables. That's the other thing. It's well, it's so right. obvious. It's like, <sighs> but people can't see that. Like, well, and, and you know, I think it's, I I I have a lot of respect for for vegetarians who make the make the decision to eat better because of the ecological impact of of their eating. And I I would say one hundred percent if you cut out confinement meat, you are going to make a massive impact in, you know, the, the carbon footprint of your, of your diet. I'd say that those vegetarians and meat eaters for that matter should go the next step further and just start thinking like, okay, you know, I have children or I know children or I like children in the world or I just, I like humans to continue to exist. <laughs> so like, how do I behave in a way that humans will continue to exist 50 years after I'm gone or 500 years after I'm gone? And like right now, 99% of us are behaving in the exact opposite way. And, and so that's what I just would say is, you know, more people need to start thinking that way. And I'm not saying like I'm, I'm perfect either. You know, obviously I drive a car, I drive a freaking van to go deliver my my stuff to people, but I'm always trying to make that distinction of, you know, what, what are we doing to make this better? You know? And so like in, in a few weeks, we'll be planting, you know, 75 to hundred more trees to make our, you know, our future, um, uh, future crop production that much better for our animals. And I think that, you know, you just need to make those little incremental steps in, in how you eat, how you behave, who you shop with. I mean, you know, where you buy literally anything, right? Like all of it has a consequence. And that's like, um, my, my one buddy had this thing on his shop wall, like where he worked that said every day, do one thing to make your life easier. And I would argue that you could say the same thing every day, do one thing to make your life better and to make everyone else's life better. Right. right. And so like, if that one thing is, okay, I'm going to just start buying milk 
from a place where I know, you know, the, the animals are treated well and the milk has actual nutrients in it that are going to feed my body, then do that today, yeah. you know, yeah. and then, and then four, you know, three or four months from now, when you feel good doing that, start thinking about like, okay, I buy organic vegetables and produce at Wegmans. Do I know who's growing this stuff? You know, and if it's from Spiral Path or somebody like that, then you can say, yeah, I definitely know it. But if it's coming from Florida or California and you have no idea who what their practices are, then like, you know, then try and make that distinction. Join a vegetable CSA in the summer, you know, and then, right. you know, just gradually make those those changes and, and, you know, make your life better, make other people's lives better. Because the only way farms like mine are going to succeed is if people actually buy shit from us. <laughs> yeah, that's fucking true. That's very yeah. true. All right, Miller, thanks for joining Dane's platform for the second second interview. I think this is the second on, on this one. Uh, yeah. Um, so I want to have you on again, and then we'll just talk about how you have this interest in, you know, jujitsu and lifting weights and, you know, any typical thing that you're doing that isn't typical for uh, for a modern-day farmer, especially after I just read an article in the paper about how the, the average age of a farmer is like, 47 or 48 years old so i want to go over that in the next the next podcast hopefully within the next like three or four weeks we could we could uh touch base and, and go over that <laughs> that sounds like a great opportunity <laughs> all right go ahead miller go ahead then see ya at this time we want to give a big thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of dane's platform Remember to look out for our next episode and check out our sponsors, Earth-Fed Muscle, The Acceleration Diet, and Holistic Encapsulations. Peace!